Hello and welcome to the Panty Fada, where the snowflakes are triggered and all you socialist comrades out there are assigned a teat to suckle on and a primary and secondary weapon of your choosing. <laughs> I'm Jamie Peck. I guess I'm Sean Kirby. And I'm AP Andy. Just kidding, he's not here. We do what we want. <laughs> we suck at the Cuba. <laughs> Dad's way, no rules. Do whatever we want. Sorry. Stay here until 11.30. Sorry, Time Cop. Until we want. <laughs> Fuck you, Dad. Uh, yeah, Andy's an abolitionist for the carceral state, except when it comes to Time Cops. Mm. Yeah, you can't have a revolution without Time Cops. It's true. <laughs> we are finding that out today. Andy's actually, uh, for context, he's actually at the first Trotskyist conference, although really? he isn't quite a Trotskyist, but it's about Trotskyism. The first Trotskyist conference ever in Cuba. Which makes wow. sense because the, Cu- the Cubans murked a lot of Trotskyists wow. in the I'm 60s. But yeah, he's there, but we're here. So that, that, wow, so up. Andy's in Cuba. Um, I have returned from my psychological journey <laughs> through the darkest reaches of my subconscious and out the other end. I'm speaking, of course, of the 24-hour drone festival mm. in Hudson, New York. Funny story about that. Yeah, I, uh, uh, the demon acid. I think oh, listeners um, might have heard a bit about let's, that. Oh, wait. Let's introduce our guest first. Oh, we are we here have with a guest. Katie Halper. Oh, Katie Halper. Katie Demon Acid. Comedian. <laughs> Katie Demon Political acid commentator, <laughs> journalist, and spirit guide. Hello, Katie. Hello. <laughs> So, yeah, um, I guess it turned out to be and Demon And also acid. the Katie Halper Show, which oh. is your main, because you're going to be on my live Oh, uh, yes. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. No, I'm operating right. at very low bars today. Post-Demon. The PSA party oh, yeah. kept me out very late last night, but it was a lot of fun. And I want to thank everybody who came or just supported it by buying a ticket. It was a veritable congery of heroes of the uh, hipster... Brooklyn podcast a veritable left. rogues gallery Indeed. of gatekeeping <laughs> mean kids who else was there or whatever the fuck uh, we th- are we we drop enough names okay, let's fine. just say that there were some no uh, but I just want to say it was like really nice and fun to see my um, my normal party friends they're not normal but they're like my Bushwick party friends kind of interact with my DSA friends who are like I guess they're like uh, they're good kids. I'll the just other say, ones are like apolitical, they're, the Bushwick ones. They're, like they're less, yeah, they're less political, but they're fucking monsters. So none of them listen to this show, but if they're listening, they know who they are. Let's just say acid is not their drug of choice. So, well, sometimes it is, but uh, <laughs> most not, of the time it is. Not this time. So, <laughs> so this like, oh, this sweet, sweet DSA girl with pink hair was like, "Hey guys, you want to come back to my house after the party?" and People are like, yeah, sure. It's like four in the morning and I'm looking around at who's there. I'm like, she has no idea what she's getting herself into right now. Did she come out the other side alive? I hope so. Uh, they might still be there at her house yeah. for all we know. Like these people do not fuck around. So so all if you are of, listening, uh... sweet pink haired DSA girl, I'm sorry. I sh- probably should have warned you, but you know what? Maybe she had a good time. So um, some we, we all took demon acid and like kind of freaked out. And me and boy Jamie like joked for a minute. We're like, oh, wow, we're totally going to end up like smoking cigarettes, hiding in your sister's car. Ha ha ha. And then a second later, I'm like, wait, can we actually do that? And he's like, yes. So we went to the car. And that's when does you he called not have me. a sister, though? No, he does. <laughs> I thought it'd be cooler if he had We had borrowed his sister's car for the occasion. That would be cool, though, yeah. if there was no sister right, and there exactly. was no car. 
there was. <laughs> we were just like lying in a field getting mistaken for dead bodies, which is a thing that happened to a different friend of mine in Hudson who will not be named. We, Sam Cedar. What happens in Hudson? We were hiding in the car smoking cigarettes and we're like, we're going to, okay, let's call our attorney. And we call Nero. What? And <laughs> Nero, we call him our attorney. Is he Nero's an attorney? He's, he, he is, is yeah. yeah. He's not our attorney, though. He's made that very clear to what us. What kind of law does he do? How did that not come up when he, I was talking to him? He makes lots of money. It's, he does it's lots really of money boring. law. He it's doesn't like, like to talk about law? it. It's, it's just money law. It's like some corporate shit. Yeah. So like, let's call our attorney. And then also we called Sean. We called two people. We called Nero and Sean. And I'm, I'm the defendant. We were yeah, on we co defendant. We were on the phone with Nero for half an hour and we hung up on Sean. Yeah. I was I'm a like, bad mm, I was bad. Maybe mm. I married the wrong guy. Oh, oh you and Nero would have never worked out. <laughs> Marriage regret. Sean Sean fucked with me the way he always fucks with me when I'm on acid and it's so mean. And he's such an asshole. And I still can't tell if it like actually was helping or not. He he maybe helped in his own it's, way. It's like, he was like, he was, like threatening to record our conversation oh. for the podcast he's like oh are you demon out. jamie this is really good content right now can i start <laughs> recording this can i start recording this for the show and i could not tell if he was serious right. or not but i was like fuck you fuck you it's not fucking <laughs> then funny she hung up on and, <laughs> and then boy jamie like came up at that exact moment like because he had been taking horrible acid shit he came and like scared me because i was by myself in the car and i was like tell sean he's a fucking asshole and he did and we hung up on him <laughs> what's that the happened. relationship between demon acid and angel dust <laughs> oh god the, none they're not like the two Thankfully. poles of a moral field or they're something? the two genders uh, i don't know what i understand from demon acid is that you took a single tab but you yeah. didn't know what you were in for. No, no, no. And we always bring like a couple extra in case we run into someone who right. wants it. But like, I'm like, dude, I can't believe we're just going to give this stuff to people. Like, mm-hmm. I'm an experienced psychonaut. This is not for beginners. Mm. But um, one more thing I'll say about the Drone Fest is um, somebody recognized me from the majority report Uh-oh. while I was coming up on the demon acid. And it was probably the first time I've not enjoyed that Being particular thing happening. <laughs> the real heads know not to talk to me right. at the 24-hour drone festival. I'm sorry. What's a drone festival? Oh, it's not the kind that fly in the sky. It's music. <laughs> it pushes the boundaries of what music even is, man. The coolest thing. There were a lot of cool things. Awful. The, <laughs> it was amazing. The coolest thing. And I brought my mom the first year that I went and I wrote about that for Noisy. And it was very trippy, like on its own, even. I was skeptical as to whether that was even possible without drugs. But like a lot of a lot of different cultures have them. It's basically like any repeating tone. And you have them in Indian music. You have them in all kinds of different music. And it's like a spiritual thing. Oh, like, like kind of therapy. Like they do it as therapy in some places. Mm, no. It's no. like, it, like uh, it, Tibetan. Uh, throw chanting. Yeah. Throw it, chanting. Like, it sort could of be. Thing. Or the didgeridoo. It like or... bores your mind into a state of like transcendent nothingness. Mm, I don't know. sounds cool. It's it like was, some Russell Branch. Or... And they have. Yeah, totally. Oh, God. That's a good segue. <laughs> We're totally going to talk about this. when We have on my TV boyfriend russell brand my other husband well we'll get there we have like a whole women with your hair color so yeah cause she mm. is jamie is basically the katie perry of the left yeah <laughs> i'll take it so before we move on to the meat of our episode which is of course the 90s um something happened recently that was kind of disturbing in the realm of free speech and i think sean would like to speak on it as we all know um Free speech is a very important issue, uh, not just in the United States, but all over the world. 
And um, if we lose our ability to communicate, uh, we've really lost, you know, lost ourselves. So just this last week, there were several very important thinkers. And by that, I include uh, Paul Joseph Watson. Um, was it Stefan Molyneux as well? I don't know, babe. Well, definitely. This is your segment. Definitely Laura Loomer. Uh, they were taken off of Facebook. And Queen. I do not want to Queen get. Queen Esther. <laughs> I do not want to get into a whole other debate about what deplatforming means. I just want to, for one moment, to luxuriate in alt-right tears. Mm. And I would love you, Jamie, to play the video of Laura Loomer reacting to herself being taken off of uh, Facebook because it's just... I don't know. It's like when that guy got egged last week by a guy who we may or may not be really good friends with. It's always a beautiful thing, even though it's not it doesn't have any material effect on the struggle or the real world. You know, we should allow ourselves the enjoyment of watching people on the other side get fucking owned. If I can't laugh while drinking a mug of fascist tears, exactly. I don't want any part of this revolution. Exactly. So so cue us some Laura. Loomer. What are they doing? I want to know what people are actually going to do. My life is ruined. Does anybody understand how ruined my life is? I'm sick of it. I don't want to listen to people tell me that I'm a conspiracy theorist. They don't know what it's like to be me. My life is ruined, Alex. No, I understand. I'm just thinking you need to go with it. And, uh, you know, I just I understand. I've been through this myself. I love that Alex Jones comes off like the rational (laughs) who's like coaching someone through something. I understand. All right, it's okay. Calm down, honey. We're in there, done that. He was clearly... I love when uh, when Alex Jones like uh, throws subtle shade, like when Mike Cernovich was on and fucked up that thing. I mean, Alex Jones is a lot of things, but uh, he is definitely like a uh, a performer. He I is, met uh, him in real life. Oh, did you at How- the RNC? I ran into him, and cool. I just like in, I they let me get into his like entourage because I was a woman wearing like a sundress, and um, <laughs> nice. I just asked him. He's very fast on his feet, so I was like. Are you having a good time here? Because I didn't know I didn't know I would run into him, and I'm like, "Are you having a good time here?" And he's like, "Yeah, I always enjoyed uh, fighting tyranny." I always enjoyed fighting tyranny. And then I asked him like who he liked more. You know, obviously I knew the answer, but if he had any, he said Trump. And I said, any reservations? He's like, well, I don't like the whole torture thing, but at least he's honest about it. <laughs> and then I asked him why he didn't like Hillary. What policies? And he was like, oh, because she's going to piss all over the whole world like a big fat goblin. I was like, oh, okay. And I laughed because it was so funny. But I think some people thought I laughed like in Quite solidarity. In solidarity with to, Alex yeah. Jones. And then I ran into him, uh, Nick um, Nick Pinto, the journalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I told him, him about it. I ran into him right after. And I remember him being like, does he actually think she's a, like a, a big fat goblin? Like he meant, does he believe in them? Because he's such a conspiracy theorist. But I thought he was asking me, like, does he identify as a fat goblin? Like, does he goblin identify? <laughs> anyway, it was neither one. I don't think. Does but. Alex Jones goblin identify? Yeah, that's what I was. I was just reading. <laughs> out. I don't think so. Does he literally think that she's a goblin, or is he just taking a shot at oh, her? Oh, it was looks? a shot at her. But I think, I think, like Nick probably was asking whether or not he thought there was like a goblin believing <laughs> field out there who he was, he was pit, uh, pitching to. You well, know what I mean? one person that speaks a lot about the. Uh, the dark arts, whether that be goblins or demons or cultural Marxism or just the left in general, is our friend, a man who helped to get us uh, 
I don't know, suspended from Twitter for a while. His name is Paul Joseph Watson. Oh, what happened on Twitter? I don't know the story. Oh well. Oh yeah, that, that it was a it was like a few weeks back. Sean's a messy bitch online. Yeah. That's all you need to know about that. It was stupid because because we got suspended only like because uh, I did a throwaway thing about white genocide, which like George Chicarella Mar yeah. did even better like two years ago. I had and, him on after that. Uh, yeah. Andy Andy texted the group DM and he's like, "You need to cool it with the white genocide stuff." Uh, it was in direct response to somebody else, but. Paul Joseph Watson, he was instrumental in getting us uh, yeah, suspended and also articles written up about Jamie. Oh, and, yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah, it was good times. But Thanks for the free publicity, Paul Joseph Watson. Th- this is a beautiful thing right here because Paul Joseph Watson, who is also um, not shadow banned, but actually banned from Facebook, says in this tweet about Laura Loomer, I'm, I assume, yeah. if, God forbid... One of these deplatform people commits suicide. Some of the same people on the left who feign concern over scare quote hate, bullying, and harassment will be popping champagne corks and laughing it up. Fact. Yeah, deplatforming fascists is ableist. I bet you didn't know that, <laughs> but it is. So I think like uh, it seems like he has a fan. I feel like he's fantasizing about that more than anyone on yeah, the left. Is it projection? It's projection, yeah. but it's also like I feel like fascists are very good at you know they always say we're like a circular firing squad, but I feel like fascists are really into sacrifice and throw mm. and like sacrificing their own in really violent ways. Like I, I don't know why, but the first thing I thought about this was um, Francisco Franco, Franco, <laughs> Franco, and the Spanish Civil War and how they like let. They basically sold uh, through Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera under the bus, who was like the fascist, the Falange party founder. And they like just didn't negotiate with his captors and they like killed him. And then they used him as this great, you know, the leftists killed him. And then the then the Francoists had a great martyr um, and they Mm. would sing about him and stuff. And then when Franco, this was in the 30s during the Spanish Civil War, which was 36 to 39. Then when Franco died in 75, they pulled the plug on him the same day, November 20th. So they could have this mythical death Similarly enough, if uh, Gavin McInnes ever becomes a martyr to the cause, it will certainly be at the hands of one of his own disgruntled followers. And and if they're smart, they'll make it on April 30th, which is the day that uh, Hitler committed suicide. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, um, it's a a day that's a celebratory one. And uh, Laura Loomer, I mean, really, like what I think this tweet says is that Laura Loomer needs some serious help right now. I know. She is a full grifter, right? Like she has nothing but grift. She is a conspiracy theorist as much as she likes to deny it she's uh anti-muslim she uh, accuses you know politics of being a not quite a jewish plot but a cultural marxist right. and plot she's jewish herself right? yeah she yeah. is and she gets she makes a lot of hay out of the fact that she's right, jewish too yeah. but you know what's nice about she's us so here on the left Sorry. we even want her to have adequate mental health yeah, care we do. that's uh, yeah, right seriously. exactly so really paul, jo- paul joseph watson with this tweet you know, saying, uh, you know, if what God forbid, if one of these deplatform people commits suicide, he's basically holding the gun to our heads, you know, as Laura Loomer is in the weeds right now trying to figure out how the fuck she's going to spread her noxious. No, that's you know, like ideas. textbook abuse, like threatening to kill yourself yeah, if the person right, doesn't yeah, do totally, what you yeah. want yeah. is an abusive behavior. It is. It totally but is. You feel like. He's threatening on her behalf. Well, she yeah. already has threatened to kill herself oh, she over has? this kind of stuff. Over, yeah. over Twitter initially a few yeah. weeks ago, right? She, yeah. Or no, a few months ago. She was like, uh, I can't tell you how 
much I feel like, uh, you know, self-harming right now because I got my check mark taken away. Well, then this is where like a good person who, you know, had anything beyond politics, a person like Watson, who uh, isn't a good person, but like if he even wants to pretend to be at all caring, this is when he would like reach out to her or right. help her get a mental health professional, yeah. Yeah. not like taunt the left. Not right, exactly. Left. Use it to fucking score points. Like it, it's got so 11,000 yeah. likes and 3,000 retweets because for these people, it's just all about yeah, the These people, optics, they don't know? care yeah. about their fellow human beings, let alone like they don't care about each other. I phrase that well. No, let, let's let's be clear, and maybe this is what you're trying to say. Like, they is don't that even if, care about their own people, right? Yeah, let if alone La- people who are not connected to them directly. If yeah. Laura Loomer, which who is a horrific person, yeah. and I don't want to see anybody die, so if yeah. she killed herself, it would, I mean, just be sad in general. But I, I'm sorry, but Paul Joseph Watson would love it if right. she fucking slit her yeah. wrist or yeah, jumped I, off a yeah. bridge oh, yeah. over being deplatformed. It would be she'd be a martyr, exactly, yeah. just like the you know Rivera yeah. that you're talking about with Francisco Franco. That's the shit they love that shit because they're the new persecuted minority, yeah, totally, right? Yeah. It's this complete inversion of the reality, which is that their ideology is the central ideology in the world right now. Uh, you know, proto-fascism is moving from strength to strength, but still they're marginalized. You know, Laura Loom will say like, what about white people? You know, what about, uh, you know, uh, the, the Jews being persecuted by Muslims? Right. What about conservatives who are standing on a classical liberal platform? It is this amazingly disingenuous but effective trick to turn themselves into the ones who are being bullied right. and oppressed instead of the actual refugees and migrants right. and working and class people. people and yes, people exactly. who they are like whose persecution they're encouraging and exactly. engaging in. Exactly. So in other Twitter news, Twitter news, um, there was recently a bit of a brouhaha Twitter over the picture of AOC's boyfriend oh, yeah. that was circulating. Um, I believe some people were chagrined at how this beautiful left-wing goddess could be dating such a basic-ass-looking raccoon man. or Bidden raccoon. Yeah, Bidden raccoon, I mean, yeah. the politically correct term is mapache, I believe. <laughs> but um, That's anyway. That's a cute word. I love that word. Too. Yes, it is much more descriptive of the animal than yeah. the word in English. Very so everyone's yeah. all upset about this. Everyone's all upset about our friend Jake. Uh, Flores, his t- his tweet on it, which um, this is uh, another segment uh, this week in Flores. So it's a very dangerous time to have a take, folks. It just really is not safe out there. Think of the take. Havers. So he yeah. said, and I quote, the disbelief that AOC's boyfriend is some normal looking raccoon man is another <laughs> example of how people don't understand that she is an actual socialist and not a pop star who vaguely referenced the Black Panthers. That's once. really funny. I thought it was funny. I also enjoyed his funny tweet about Diane Feinstein's what thick slam piece. Um, not important, but it was funny. And then so this person, Sophia C.K., no relation, no relation to uh, Penis CK, <laughs> yeah. I gather. The famous um, stand-up comedian. She yes. was very angry about this tweet, and she replied, quote, Actual hot socialists Actually. date ugly men because that's praxis. Like, okay, so so she's like what? angry. She's angry that because uh, she thinks everything is like a sitcom. She's angry that like AOC would date this like ginger oaf or whatever because she's like all these hot women end up with these average men and that's bad for feminism like she doesn't know is she a fem cell 
I don't know. She doesn't know. Like, this guy could have many fine qualities yeah, to recommend him. Yeah. Yeah. He could give her, like, squirting, quadruple orgasms. Yeah. Like, we don't know. Yeah. She probably lets, he probably lets her peg him. Like, yeah. He's woke. My second thought, yeah. Basically, the DSA, like, uh, you know, under the Bolsheviks, there was this conception of the new Soviet man. I think the new DSA man is a guy who will hold the door open for yeah. you. He'll talk to you about political economy, and he'll let you uh, peg him. Yeah. You know, if you feel like yeah. it, because so he's my, that, uh, that woke. This is the future deal, uh, leftists want. Yeah. What are so, they called? Not red line. What is it? Deal, break- deal breakers. Yeah. My deal breakers. Yeah. Yeah. Pegging so, was your deal breaker. <laughs> as, not of, pegging. as of uh, a minute ago. Yeah. <laughs> so um, she continues. WTF does Beyonce have to do with this, except for the fact you have a weird need to compare WOC and love the defense for average guys from people who would sneeze at a fat girl. What? Wow. This is so much projection. This it's so is, unfair. It's yeah. a real femme song. Like, who does she think that Jake Wait, where's the Beyonce is? reference? Has she um because like the Black Panther the pop star Black Panthers thing? Has she oh. internalized like the uh the virgin whatever versus the Chad? Like is that is it that version of it, but just for liberal identity? Does politics? she think that Jake is a virgin or a Chad? I don't even know. I'm she thinks to Jake is some out. like manosphere like incel <laughs> who feels entitled to the attention of right. like really hot, hot women, women yeah. like oh. punching above his weight, you know? Something like that. So then Jake just said, Oh, thank you for this. So like blah 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 blah. Now Everyone's upset at our friend Jake for having right. a take, and that rhymes. Um, but you know what? In this wake. You know what? I'm going to... <laughs> In the wake of this take exactly. by Jake. Uh, contrarian, <laughs> I'm going to have a contrarian take. I actually agree with this person. Um, I think that it is extremely sad and tragic that such a beautiful socialist goddess would end up in such a boring, heteronormative relationship with a guy who looks like every guy you see at a DSA meeting. So in light of that, um, I, I'm going to officially invite her to be our third. Um, <laughs> Sean and I are much more attractive than that guy. It would be uh, not only queer, but uh, poly, right. mm-hmm. as well as uh, Very progressive. just a whole lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, smashing patriarchy smashing yeah exactly she's there- been on my show if i had known and if i had known this would happen <laughs> i would have extended the in, uh, invitation ex post facto well i tell you life comes at you fast so if One she day doesn't you're- accept if she doesn't accept you're going to know that she's actually a um homophobic mm-hmm. misogynist mm. self-loathing um, yeah basically yeah yeah hashtag canceled yeah mm-hmm. well that's really no nice uh, <laughs> yeah right that's really nice of jamie to invite a third into our relationship yeah. on uh my behalf affirmative consent i i don't know yet i think consent gets thrown out the window once you're on a podcast and your mm-hmm. wife invites a uh, third into your right. uh into your marriage but that's fine you know i'm into it it's cool yeah uh, we're talking about it we're talking about right. it right now let's right. talk it out you're talk cultivating consent <laughs> <laughs> you're creating consent yeah. that was, exactly that was uh no noam chomsky was gonna yeah, call exactly. it uh cultivating, cultivating consent, consent. Yeah. it's about you know how to pull hot leftist women which we like just talked about in a very serious way on our episode before last with natasha leonard mm, so mm. Mm, sorry tosh i guess we yeah. learned nothing we learned yeah. the wrong thing we learned all the wrong things all the wrong things but also she has the accent so it's okay it's really hot Speaking of hot, there is another uh, individual out there in the world. Um, he's been written about in such, you know, luminary essays as the late Mark Fisher's Vampire Castle. 
He has been a uh, working class hero for some time. Uh, former drug user, now transcendental medication meditation mm. king. He has a show called Under the Skin uh, that he podcasts about, and he has people like David Harvey on and other uh, you know Marxist thinkers, but also people like Candace Owens. You know, he he's did. like he, had her he really did. Yeah, he's like Dave Rubin if Dave Rubin wasn't actually full of shit. You know, like uh, he'll have fucking Ugh, babe. he'll have he'll have Sam Harris on and talk to him about fucking ideas. Islam ideas. Like, I'm not, again, it's I don't want to get ideas. into the platforming debate, right. right? But Russell Brand really is taking all comers. You know, he will take the Marxist geographer, David Harvey, and he will also take Sam Harris onto his show and talk really fast at them and say a lot of things that are, like, poetic and smart and, uh, you know, just work yeah. work through it yeah, all. Yeah, if you're going to have someone like that on your show, you really need to challenge them. You know, whether or not AOC agrees to be a third in our relationship, um, We've also got room in our polycule for you. So if you would like to uh, come on the Antifada, that could perhaps function as our first date. Mm-hmm. We would get to know That's each sad. other sad, yeah. a little bit and like see where it goes from there. Yeah, I mean, Russell Brand, uh, I got to say, you are an attractive man. You're also witty. The way that you took down uh, Paxman in that beautiful, wonderful interview from five years back when he asked you who gives you the right and he's in to talk about revolution he's like i don't need anybody to give me the i take the right it was a wonderful Uh, moment we all sean's panties were drenched oh i tell you my calves were fucking quivering cramping cramping Cramping. and you know what sean's like pretty hetero so like the fact that he would agree to this already like says something pretty impressive you didn't even have to ask me babe if Russell Brand, if you want our first date to be on the Antifada, just let us know. We we will slide into your DMs, Russell. Oh, yeah. Or Russ. May I call you Russ? We may slide into your DMs. Our but if you reach out to us first, we'll meditate with we you. Around, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We will not be like that stupid glamour model, Sophie Cody, who like... P.S. What the fuck even is a glamour model is like a thing that only exists in the UK. It's a page six thing. It's, it's like those like tabloids who it's shows like... her boobs in between fascism. <laughs> yes, that's in like all the that British, British all that British tabloids are is fascism page six with boobs and then the rest is fascism yeah, that's like, not a I've, career i've been a glamour model it's called suicide girls it's not that special all right and she was all like "Ooh, he made me meditate with him and it was <laughs> weird and like it wasn't fun and like what did she say about him she was like a bad lover yeah, or whatever but like you know what? i don't believe it i don't believe it i i think from all indications like he's a great lover he will eat that ass for as long <laughs> as you want him to and maybe we can listen to some drone music at the same time. And as I said, since Jamie Peck is essentially the Katie um, Perry of the left, you know, it would not be hard for Ooh, him to transition. I mean, I he I might not like that. that on the hair color. That's that's all. He I might know. find it very triggering. Yeah, they got right. divorced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gonna... They got divorced. He got divorced from Katy Perry like not that long ago. <laughs> well, it was longish ago, but I think people may not just get over divorces that well. Depending. I, I yeah. we had our whole pitch to him, and I just blew it right now. I, know, I triggered. I triggered him. Oh, and we just, fucked it up. He just pressed like cancel flight. <laughs> <laughs> he just canceled the better flight. Luck. He was on his Better luck next time. But listen, it was a it was an opening salvo. Turnaround. Listen. 
listen, you know, it's one thing to have a third, but it's another thing to be in a wonderful four-way relationship with both Russell Brand and also Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And uh, we're here for it, and folks. And Jamie Peck from the Antifada. Well, no, I meant we and like you yeah. and I, yeah. you know. Uh, sorry, Andy. <laughs> You're the fifth wheel. <laughs> Andy gets so mad when we talk about a relationship on the show. But maybe if it's queer and poly, then maybe then he'll, he'll like it. To. He'll like he'll it better. Be problematic. If you, if yeah, he, yes. exactly. It's problematic to object to it. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. what it is. That's what it is. So, folks, we are here today to talk in a very sort of nebulous way about a decade. It's called the 1990s. You may be familiar with it. It happened mm-hmm. between... I don't know, 19 and 29 years ago. It was a uh, so it was a decade of, of contrast. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of us here at the Antifada and our guest, Katie, we're all of a certain age. We are men and women of a certain age. Mm-hmm. And we want to explore this particular decade, not merely because of its political, economic, and cultural relevance to this moment in time, but also because we have a lot to say because it was our childhood. We yeah. grew up on that And shit. not to mention, we are millennials, which means we love to talk about ourselves mm. and our childhood. So Between our bites of avocado. Exactly, yes. exactly. Like avocado toast that we bought mm. instead yeah, of a home. I love avocado, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's, so good. it's delicious. The it's best. got amino acids. Like, what good more fat, could you ask fat, for? Right? Yeah. So um, the thesis of this episode, if I may, Please do. is that the various phenomena of the 90s have prefigured what much of what we face today for example uh zoomers think they invented butt stuff but uh <laughs> we were all reading about it in the star report before they were even <laughs> fucking born okay is it confirmed i mean because i know the star report was actually like a grand jury thing right or a special prosecutor thing is it confirmed that bill clinton ate ass or was it monica oh, that i think ate she ass? ate his ass all right, all right i didn't even know about this i there's butt stuff in the in the star report oh yeah there's anal lingus in the star really? report oh yeah i thought it was just Sodomy via sodomy via cigar. Oh it was no, a no, different no. sodomy. I forget. Okay, it was more sodomy than you thought. Our friend Ahmad <laughs> read the whole thing. Uh, glance. Yeah, when he was a kid, because like wow. he's a sick fuck and he's like sex. So like he's like, oh yeah, she's so cool. She got her ass eaten out in the Oval Office by the leader yeah, of the free gives world. A, gives a new meaning to Oval Office. <laughs> oval orifice. Ooh, nice one. <laughs> but yeah, then like... Gaped, I, gaped by the press. I also yeah. heard it reported that she ate his ass. But either way, there was definitely a mention of ass eating in the Star Report. And this is like 1999, folks. How much, you know, have we really progressed past the time when a president can eat ass or have his ass eaten? Nothing. There's nothing new under the sun, really. Oh, God. Wow, yeah. I just thought about Donald Trump's ass and oh, got a no. little bit sick. <laughs> That's his, also his mouth. There's a, I feel like there's a <laughs> lot of... Dumpy, those cottage lips. cheese, so fucking bediapered ass. So gross. Yeah, he is, he's too vanilla, man. He would never eat or have eaten his... No, he doesn't, he doesn't even like sex, all right? Yeah, I think you're... Yeah, he's he pretty, likes talking about sex. Yeah, he likes to true. brag about what it. Like he's asexual? I don't mean that in a... Um, I think he is... Is he our first ace president? Like, yeah, I think that'd be like a lot of like... It wouldn't make sense because... Uh, are you looking up analingus in the Star Report? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you are. I know that look. It's really real. I never real. knew about that. Mm. And uh, I should know about this for various... I mean, I write about the... Well, look, yeah, you, a, what kind of a Clintonologist are I'm you, not. Katie? You don't even know about the ass eating. I don't. Because, listen, the um, democracy is all about trans- transparency. Right. And there's, uh, you know, it's our right. 
whether we have to do a um, what's it, a Freedom of Information Act, a FOIA on it, or whether we have to have a special prosecutor. It is our right to know what the president or any elected leader, for that matter, AOC or whoever, what sort of Just butt stuff they do. Just to use one random example. Yes, one random, what sort of butt stuff were they involved right. in? And that's fine. That's, that's democracy for you, folks. Mm-hmm. So, they engaged in oral anal contact as well. See Lewinsky 8928 <laughs> Depot. Uh, She's going deep, Wow, folks. that's what she said. Wow. <laughs> I did not know. Is that a, f- a kind of foreplay? What? It can be. If you want to be so, like, heteronormative. Or is that the Entered oh, on the male I orgasm. So it's... it's it, it Why can, does it have to be foreplay? It could be Why the can't foreplay be the and the end game. Postplay. Yeah, you seem stressed out. Let me lick your bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do we connect this? How do we segue? How do we transition from analingus in Help the Oval Office? No, I, I got this. I got okay. this. So I think the way that we do it is that Katie Halper yeah. of the Katie Halper Show, soon to be a member of the live event at Littlefield with Struggle Session, Struggle Session and Katie Halper Show together yeah. with special guests, Matt Taibbi, Jake Flores from Pod Save America, <laughs> and Jamie Peck from the Intifada. It is going to be a live, amazing event. So it is, what's the date again? May 10th, 8 p.m. at Littlefield. May 10th, 8 p.m. at Littlefield. Boom. Buy your tickets now and show up if you're within 200 miles of the New York City metropolitan area. Do you keep saying Pod Save America by accident or Or on purpose because you think it's funny? No, it's like when Sam calls Mike Cernovich, Mike Cernovich. It's funny to to say that. I don't know. it It might not be funny. It's fine. But it's intentional. It's intentional, yeah. yeah. We'll see if Jake thinks it's funny. It's quasi-intentional. So the way to the way to square this circle, which is a metaphor that makes no sense, but is kind of butt stuffy. Yeah, exactly. Is uh, (laughs) Katie Halper has recently been doing some journalism. Uh, She's been doing journalism in various outlets about a man named Bill Clinton, the analingus president, the first butt stuff president not the first black president first butt stuff president and a woman named Juanita Broderick yes so why don't you uh for our listeners out there bring us to the 90s yeah or was it the 80s I forget it was but... the 70s actually when this happened, but it came to light in the 90s so um so what happened was uh you know, I, I came of age during the 90s, and I was very into Bill Clinton. In fact, I remember, like, really defending him because, of course, and this is something we see now, there's this real danger of, like, the w- but the but the Republicans, but the Republicans this, or, or they're hypocrites. It's like, we all know that. So when Newt Gingrich went after Bill Clinton for his stuff with Monica Lewinsky, he couldn't have cared less about Oh, anything. he was having his own affair. Of course, at the he was having time. his own yeah. affair, right? Oh, yeah. And, like, the Star Report, the whole investigation was incredibly traumatizing to Monica Lewinsky. Yeah. Like, I mean, they didn't yeah, give a shit course, about that. they didn't care at all. And Clinton was terrible to her, obviously. He said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I did not have sexual relations. Exactly. And so, but what's really interesting um, is that, and now through the, the Me Too lens, people are looking at that again in a way that kind of, you know, where does consent fit into this? And, and Tarana Burke, who founded the Me Too movement, does consider that a Me Too relationship but clearly that's on one end of the spectrum right where it's kind of like what kind of consent exists between the most powerful man in the entire world right and a recent college graduate intern, the white right? house intern well, yeah. yeah if it's not allowed between a manager and an employee at exactly. chipotle right. probably shouldn't be allowed between <laughs> the white two. house yeah exactly right. Right. right so it's definitely a harassment i mean it definitely violates some form of consent but then on the other end of that spectrum is juanita Broderick, who i have to say 
I um, used to just dismiss. I don't even remember dismissing her. I just knew that in my brain. I didn't even take her seriously. And I kind of assumed that she was a conspiracy theory. I had I had heard the name back yeah, then. Yeah, me but, too. But yeah, I didn't and Jennifer know. Flowers. Yeah. And, yeah. But Juanita Broderick um, is someone who has politics that I really disagree with. She's a Trump supporter. Actually, I I shouldn't even start that way because it's unfair. Juanita Broderick is someone who has been claiming since 99 that Bill Clinton raped her in 1978. When they met, she was he was the attorney general and she was the owner and administrator of a nursing home. And she was this is something to remember when you hear people smear her as a right wing operative. She was volunteering for his campaign. She had voted for um, Kennedy, then she'd go on to vote for, uh, like, JFK, and then she'd go on to vote for Bush, and then she'd vote for Obama. So she was not a right-wing ideologue at any point. And the context of it, too, was that she was supporting his campaign and wanted to have a meeting with him about health care issues, and he said, instead of having it... With uh, with Bill Clinton. Right, with Bill Clinton, yeah. So they met, and and she says that he sought her out, um, and I interviewed about this, but... uh, he sought her out and was talking to him, her mostly. And she said, but it made sense because I was the owner of the nursing home. And she was really flattered that this guy was so interested in her and in her ideas about um, how to take care of coverage, like basically of health insurance for for nursing home patients. And they were going to meet. And um, he said, you know, let me know if you're in, cause, uh, in Little Rock anytime because this is in Van Buren, Arkansas, where she's from. And then she went to a nursing conference and she told him about it and she called him and he said, um, let's meet at your coffee shop, the hotel. Let's meet in the hotel's coffee shop. And then he got there, and he called up and said, oh, it's really crowded with reporters, so wait, can we just meet in your hotel room? And she said yes. And then he came up, and she had all these, like, files and charts and, and like, reports that she had brought to show him. And um, they started talking, and then he raped her. And, um, like, violently, violent, you know, like – very violently, um, you know, ripped her pantyhose and she had a black lip, um, a swollen lip. And whenever she tried to cry out, apparently he like pushed her down in a way that like really hurt her shoulder or would bite on her lip. And didn't he, is horrific, but didn't he say something like about her busted lip? Yeah, like, you're you going to want to put some ice on right, that. Or, yeah, yeah, that's which is the, the name of her, of her memoirs straight up uh, violent psychopath. It rings very true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there were people who saw her right after who saw the, the, you know, busted lip. She didn't want her personal life opened up. This was 1978. This was the attorney general. We now know from New York with Eric Schneiderman that there was an attorney general who, like, smacked women. And, you know, he said it was consensual, but none of the women say it was. You know, so it's not out. Obviously, we and, and people were even disbelieving of that now. Right. We're talking about New York in the 2000 and, you know, 18, 19 era. But obviously, then people were really doubt doubt doubting of rape victims rape survivors and she didn't ever want to come forward and she finally was like dragged forward by the Lewinsky investigation or really by Paula Jones's lawyers which is what started the whole Lewinsky thing but there even there's there's this country singer Miranda Lambert do you know her she's a country singer her parents were investigators for Paula Jones oh weird. and they showed up at Juanita Broderick's house and were recording her but she didn't know that they were recording her and they said to her like can we talk to you? We're Paula Jones lawyer investigators. And she's like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. Please leave. I'm not going to talk to you. It was so long ago. It was so horrible. I don't care what happens. I'm not going to talk to you. They're like, you're going to be subpoenaed. She's like, well, I won't give him anything because I'm not going to talk about it. It was too long ago. And it was so horrible. And you'll never catch him. He's so vicious. She said exactly what you would say if you had been raped, but didn't want to talk about it. And for the, 
Yeah, maybe a, a conspiracy theorist could think that, like, that was a plan and they <sighs> taped it. I mean, you know. And then she was um, the uh, she was deposed, as, as they predicted. She was subpoenaed, deposed, and she said nothing happened. He never did anything. And then she got deposed by um, Kenneth Starr. And at this point, her son, who is a lawyer, was like, Mom, you can't lie to these people. Perjure yourself, Yeah, you can't perjure yourself, right? right? So she got immunity, and then she said that he had raped her, that he, she had lied before. And it's like for reasons everyone understands. Like, how many women do this, Well, right? not everybody understands it, apparently. Well, that's what's so messed up, is that there are people... Like, it makes perfect sense to me. Right. So, so, and this is why it's, like, not good enough to not be Republicans, because... Okay, so just to finish, sorry. So she... She says she he did rape her, and then, and then Kenneth Starr says, "Was there?" Because remember, the impeachment was about obstruction of justice. So he says, "Was there any obstruction of justice? Did he ever try to silence you? Did he ever try to pressure you? Whatever, blackmail you, bribe you?" She said, "No." So then Kenneth Starr doesn't put it in the impeachment um, case, but he puts it in a footnote, and he has all the Republicans look at it because he wants people to know that Bill Clinton did this, and there are Republicans who are like. Yeah, like this moderate Republican, Chris Shea, was like, yeah, he, it was, it's kind of weird, but he probably raped this woman, and that still wasn't germane, you know, to the investigation. Ugh. Like, what the fuck is wrong with this fucked up system when obstruction well, of justice is a worse like crime believe, than rape? Yeah, well, that's why I believe women and stuff, and like me too, especially believe women exist, because there's so many hurdles to, to like women telling their stories. But... um Anyway, so uh, then what happens, though, of course, is then she, she doesn't want to come forward, and then they have her on, um, uh, what is it, 2020 or 60 Minutes. Yeah, and, I watched that. Yeah, and she's crying, and, you know, she um, people say these terrible things about her, like Philip Renz, who's a Hillary aide, said last year on a, uh, a podcast for the, new, for the National Review, said that she's full of shit. Like, people will just, you know, Joe Connison, some Clintonite, says that, Mentions she was having an illicit affair. Yeah, um, the nuts and sluts strategy, yeah, right? Exactly. A little bit David nutty and a little, little bit slutty. Which is what yeah. David Brock did with Anita Hill. And then, you know, people will constantly say this. Good, well-intentioned liberals say she lied. Kenneth Starr said that her claims were not credible. And Kenneth Starr has said, I didn't look into them because they didn't fall within the purview of the case. So you have people who claim to be the liberal feminists, believe women, me too people, who slut shame her mm. and who say... Well, she she the, one of their lines is she was so lacking credibility that Kenneth Starr didn't believe her, which is not mm. true. Their other line is, well, she lied about it. Why did she say she wasn't raped at first? Are you like, are you listening to yourselves? Like, I expect this from the right. right. But you're supposed to be we're supposed to be like like you were saying, that's supposed to make sense to us. How many women have denied what happened to them? And honestly, if she wanted to go out and this is why. I mean, I already believe her, but this is why I especially believe her. It's like if she were out to harm the Clintons. When Kenneth Starr asked her, had he ever tried to silence you? She could have said, yeah, in a phone call years right. ago. He said, don't tell anyone. And there would have been no proof. Yeah, it would exactly. have been his, her word right. against him. That's it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So she was out to get him. That's all would, that would have happened. And then what, of course, happens is that no feminist except for, like, the only person who kind of defends her is um, Patricia, Ireland from, Patricia Ireland from now, who said at the time in the 90s, like, let's not attack her. But... Um, Remember, these are people who said terrible things about other women who accused Bill Clinton of stuff. Jim Carville said terrible things. Finally, Donald Trump, because he's brilliant at this stuff and he knows how to get under people's skin. And this is one of the reasons the left totally underestimate him because they they care about consistency. 
and like no one else does yeah right. like we barely do oh all we have to do is point out why he's a hypocrite exactly. and then he'll just give up and go home which is right. why the hypocrisy thing never, never works. fucking yeah. works yeah because yeah. they not he didn't run on that like he didn't run no, on that at he all. ran on them being hypocrites and he yes. was right and he and he taking the mask off and him cheating and winning but he was going to cheat and win for america that's basically it which is why i'm like i don't you guys are talking to yourselves at your dinner parties that's the only people you're convincing you're in the circle jerk of like liberal like myopia and delusion anyway so um of course what happens is that she saw hillary clinton in 2016 she saw a video this is one need to project sorry and um maybe you're getting to this but hillary clinton also was she the one uh was winita broderick the one that hillary clinton came to and told her to shut the fuck up she like squeezed her hand so this is so yeah Juanita broderick says that that Hillary Clinton met her at a fundraiser because after that happened, Juanita saw her, went to this fundraiser and people again are like, if someone raped you, why'd you go? It's like, really? Do you not understand any of this stuff? So she went to this other event and she says that Hillary Clinton, she knows, but she also knows that she can't prove it. So she's in this weird position where I, I told her when we were talking, I was like, if you, if you want certain people to believe you, like there are people who won't believe you because of that part of it, that you say that Hillary Clinton knew and was threatening you. And if you don't talk about that, I wasn't like trying to convince her. I was just being honest. I was like, if you don't talk about that, you'll get more people. She's like, I don't know. I know. But I just that that's why I see it. That's what happened. So but even she, I think, would say it wasn't something like anyone could detect necessarily. Like if we had been there, it wouldn't have been like we could have seen it. Her thing is like, I just know that it happened. Like I felt like that was the message. But um, so then she she saw Hillary Clinton like in 2016. She saw an ad where Clinton talks about sexual assault um, survivors. You have the right to be listened to and believed. And she tweeted something out about it. And it was like, I was 30, I can't remember how old, 30 something when Bill Clinton raped me and Hillary Clinton tried to silence me. It never goes away. And she became like an overnight phenomenon. Actually, she told me about this. It was like really sweet that she kept trying to tweet this thing out. She never tweeted before and she saw that. So she tried to tweet it and it kept saying, kept like not letting her do it. And she had to call her grandson, Ridge, Aww. who was like 12 or 13 at the time, and didn't obviously tell him. At that point, he didn't know. So she wasn't like, I'm about to tweet about my rape by Clinton. You know, right. So she's just like, I'm trying to tweet something, and it won't let me do it. And he's like, Grandma, how many figures is it? It's probably too long. <laughs> she's like, oh. And then she like shortened it and then tweeted it out, and her life changed. So she she didn't even know about 140 characters. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts because how many years was that after she'd already given 20, the 60 Minutes interview? Years, yeah. And they played the 60 Minutes interview opposite the um, Grammys. Not a lot of people saw it. And as as the 60, uh, Leah Meyer says, Lisa, sorry, Lisa Meyer says, you know, she goes, Juanita Broderick's problem was that she was credible. And her other, she was like, it was, the good news was that she was credible. The bad news was that she was credible. So they didn't want to air it. And they kept dragging their feet and dragging their feet and dragging their feet. And then they didn't do it until after the impeachment. And then now, of course, people smear her because she spoke at the Trump at a Trump before a Trump debate. And guess what? If the Dems don't want her at a Trump debate, like they should have not ignored her or marginalized her. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, maybe this is yeah, your come take get away. your man, Democrats. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, my takeaway from this entire thing and tell me if I'm wrong, is that um, there is like a deep hypocrisy and not just a hypocrisy within liberal feminism but also a very sort of um based uh power politics that exists where 
if I think Gloria, um, what's her Steinem. name? Steinem, right? Yeah. Was uh, defending Bill Clinton yeah. at this point in time. So this whole Me Too thing, right, for, for all the good and the bad that it's done, right, has been weaponized in a, in a serious way by, like, you know, liberal, quote-unquote, feminist right. activists uh, in a very similar way that these folks were defending Bill Clinton, I guess, out of, what, tribal loyalty to the Democratic Party yeah. back they, in the 90s? And they thought that it would be better for women right. on the whole to have a Democrat yeah. who could win, and that Democrat to them was Bill Clinton. Right. Because I they mean, had no imagination. Right. And to be fair, like, I mean, it, it, it's tribalism. It's also, I guess my problem with it is, in a weird way, if they had been like, look, he's maybe a rapist, but he's better than Newt Gingrich, like, that's objectionable. But I guess, I mean, it is, I understand what people were saying, right? Like, and this is something no one really wants to say or talk about, but... Would we rather have my problem, I guess, is the hypocrisy with it. Like if you're going to have lines in the sand and absolutes as opposed to negotiated relativistic positions, then you have to have them. And it wouldn't matter so much if the entire fucking Democratic establishment, centrist, neoliberal wing of the party and the media apparatus was not saying that we need to return to norms and honesty right. in this pro, uh, right. post-truth era. Right? right? Like That is what they are running on yeah, with Biden. Well, luckily, and... they've left all that behind in the 90s where it belongs, right? Right. <laughs> right. Or, I mean, this is and I, I'm not trivializing like it, i get a lot of shit for just interviewing juanita broderick and i feel like people think i'm a trump fan i'm like i i kind of see juanita broderick also as like a symbol of what happens when the left turns its back on people there's a vacuum and where are they going to go right and trump is great at that he yeah. like welcome welcome to jesus yeah you know what they here. say like the left seeks traitors the right seeks converts oh that's really oh, good yeah. i did hear that but i'd forgotten about that yeah and so i i mean but i have feminist friends and socialist feminist friends communist friends, whatever who are like I just won't ever forgive her for, you know, for speaking in front of, for being weaponized by Trump. It's like, which I was, communists are those? Well, they identify that. I'm like, it's, it's more common than you would think. Like a lot of women I know with our politics, not all of them, and certainly less women with those politics than the libs. But some, I'm like, are you kidding? If it's I a Trump raised, derangement well, thing, Well, right? it's like a microcosm of how yeah, people exactly. want to blame the electorate on the whole for right, Trump. And exactly. they're not willing to take a look right. within right. and to take a look at the Democratic Party. Yeah. So the 90s, uh, there's a lot of nostalgia around it from people who both lived in it and Gen Z who lived after it as this sort of like the last good decade, right? This moment in time where there was a future, where people might have had irony and cynicism, but uh, not nihilism. Mm -hmm. It was a moment in time where culturally and economically and politically, it seemed like there was some hope in the future. And again, the debates of today in, in politics are really an expression of the hegemony that the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party gained in the 1990s by eliminating that old New Deal consensus. So... What we want to do here is we're going to have a little bit of fun because we all lived through this fun 90s period with pogs and uh, pogs and all that good shit. But uh, I think that it's important for us to kind of uh, get at the ways in which structurally 30 years on this uh, this decade still haunts us. It's yeah. it, it haunts well, the my, living. Can I can I say my thesis about it? Please do. Like all us. this 90s nostalgia. It's like a silly, goofy time or whatever. No, you're not nostalgic for my so-called life. 
you're nostalgic for a time when you lived at your parents' house and you didn't have to worry about how you're going to pay your rent. Yes. And I stand by that. <laughs> and even slightly older people, they're nostalgic for a time of relative peace and prosperity. And you know how I know that you're not nostalgic for the culture of the 90s? Because it's fucking garbage. <laughs> all right? The gin blossoms are kind of good. Remember them? The gin, glo- gin blossoms? Gin blossoms, yeah. Counterpoint. Yeah. Counterpoint. They Counterpoint. are not good. Gin blossoms. Like, even the things that I like, I understand that they are not good. Yeah. Like, indie movie. Yeah, yeah, like uh, a lot of uh, Catherine Keener movies. They were good. But like Marilyn Manson, oh. problematic fave, kind of garbage. The only thing from the, like, one of the only cultural things from the 90s that I will stand by to this day is Nine Inch Nails. Mm. But Nine Inch Nails was basically a synth pop band, which is more something you associate with the 80s. Also, I like Johnny Cash's version of Hurt. Oh, it's such Nails. a better version of Hurt. It's, it, it really so pulls on those yeah. heartstrings. Like, I'm not nostalgic, really, for fucking the gin blossoms. I'm nostalgic for a time when NAFTA was even controversial within the Democratic <laughs> well, that's Party. Right. I mean, that's why yeah. it's like it's I think it's both right, because it, it was the beginning of an of the end in so many ways. And I actually think that, you know, I don't see Sanders as a. I don't see Jesse Jackson as that either. I see Sanders and and then Jesse Jackson, like as in Jesse Jackson of that era. Um, I see them much more as like um, New Deal than. Yeah, um, maybe I wasn't clear about that, but they were kind of holding the candle, you know, yeah, up until yeah. D- Dukakis in '88 gets right. fu- was it '88? He gets hammered. Yeah. Uh, Dukakis gets murdered. You and know, he one of my the, earliest uh, memories is going with my mom when she voted for Michael Dukakis. <laughs> I remember when I was in uh, God, I guess I was in grade school, and uh, they had a class poll, and I was the only person that was Dukakis wow. versus George H. Oh, w. Bush in my class. That's big, Long Island for you, folks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was a big Dukakis organ. You know, I was a big um, organizer. As an you're an organizer. People. Yeah, I, I campaign organizer. <laughs> but I At also seven years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I um, I remember my. My parents um, flipping a coin over which one would vote for Jesse Jackson and which one would vote oh, for yeah. for uh, Dukakis because they but liked, you know. It, I mean, the Rainbow Coalition, which is mostly 80s, but it also kind of yeah. bleeds into the 90s. Yeah, right. my, yeah. my thesis is that that was the last attempt of like a an establishment Democratic candidate to try to keep the Democrats to yeah. the New Deal consensus yes, that arises out of the post-war period. Mm. So, yeah, and it, like a Democrat would value, like, because it's so interesting if you look at how Dukakis's comments on the death penalty, which were kind of, you know, just reminded, we were reminded of this with the, should, vote, should people in jail have the right to vote? Oh, yeah, it was right? the same thing. Same he said, thing if your yeah. wife your had been right. raped and murdered, yeah. murdered, would you support the death penalty? Shit, he said no, right. and then... As Leslie Lee pointed out, because I forgot the chronology of this. I thought that Ricky Rector was killed a lot earlier, but it was after. And that was part of it because Bill Clinton is a piece of trash. And he, you know, saw that. It didn't do well. The Billy Horton ad, he saw that. That did do well. Um, And so, Willie Horton, sorry, Willie Horton. And then, so he made sure to go back, fly back to Arkansas and oversee the execution of really, of uh, Ricky Rector. Of a mentally disabled person. Like, this is another way in which the aughts, or the time that we've been living through now is similar to the 90s, because I think the 90s were like a somewhat optimistic, socially progressive time. And then, you know, post 9-11, just conservatism reared its ugly head. And it's taken us this long to kind of get back to there. But we're seeing the limitations all over again. Like rap music representation 
right? Rap music was huge in the 90s. At the same time, and like, you know, you had a president that like played the saxophone the on the Arsenio Hall yeah. show and like yep. pandered to black people at the same time yeah. that he's Sister like kicking yeah. people off of welfare right. and sending black people to jail and ruining their fucking lives. And like, you want to look at the Obama era, we had an actual black president right. who was another example of representation and everyone's like oh everything is great now at the same time that the police are still killing black right. people so much that you know they had to start a movement called black lives matter right. well you know thomas frank in his book um listen liberal talks about how um he quotes someone some old democratic operative who says it takes a liberal and he's talking about how to slash funding and stuff you'll it'll take a liberal right because you'll have less opposition right. and he says that it was easier thomas frank says it was easier for clinton to do nafta than it would have been for reagan because clinton you're like oh our guy's in there like if if he's if he's doing it, it's because we really have to yeah and like i hate to make this comparison but it is really real is um is that same caping for him as a uh, sexual assaulter yeah, is. Yeah. right is that like mm -hmm. he's our guy yeah and um if you look at the vote and i researched this earlier I actually cut that because i won't even say i researched yeah. it earlier. i'll just say i know this yeah. uh <laughs> in 1994 when the vote comes up for NAFTA, all right, this is like central to the fucking Bill Clinton presidency, central to the neoliberal turn within the Democratic Party, away from workers' rights and away from some sort of like progressive welfare state conception yeah. of what the U.S. government can do. When that vote comes down in the House of Representatives, which was decisive at that point, the number of Republicans... Who supported that was 123. The number of right. Democrats who supported NAFTA, 103. So Bill Clinton pushes through NAFTA, which started as a Ronald Reagan right. uh, pro uh, proposal, was continued right, right. and negotiated under George H.W. Right. Bush. No one remembers this part, yeah. Nobody remembers this part. And fucking Bill Clinton pushes it through by twisting fucking arms and using this Democratic leadership council these neoliberals as a wedge to try to basically break up the hegemony of the progressive caucus within the democratic yeah. party nafta is that signal moment where you saw that you know uh what did what did clinton say like uh we're gonna end welfare as we know right. it that triangulation yeah. that that moved to the right that opportunism uh you saw that in full effect and as political scientists have looked back at that time we all remember Newt Gingrich, again, a person that is very important right now because a lot of that contract for America yeah. bullshit that came out in 1994 when the Republicans took back the House of Representatives, right? A lot of that is echoed in the Tea Party and then the, the complete cycle yeah. right today. But fucking uh, in 1994, the Democrats basically... Um, Basically, that what Bill Clinton was was a representation of the jettisoning of this conception that the New Deal welfare state could continue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was only possible by breaking the back mm -hmm. of what existed within the Democratic caucus yeah. of that power. Well, fast forward to a number of years later, 2016, and the only vocal opposition to this kind of globalized trade and, uh, you know, enforced liberalization of markets is right opposition. Yes. And we're seeing it right. all over the fucking world. And people give short shrift to the role that this yeah. this treaty, this, it's this it's the vacuum the trade played in the election in 2016. Because yeah. they're like, well, you know, you take polls from voters and they say they care more about being racist and sexist than they do about trade and they're not experiencing the, economic right. deprivation, blah, blah, blah. But like, That's like it or not, Trump though. ran on NAFTA 
Yeah. yeah. He ran against it. And I think this is going to be a very important thing for Bernie to hammer on in both the primary and the fucking general. Inshallah, yeah. Because he has a left critique of exactly. this. He has a left critique that Biden doesn't have. And of course, yeah. Trump doesn't have. So when Biden tries to go out and talk like he's a fucking populist out there and be like, oh, I'm a union man. Bernie can say like, no, you can fuck off one. right yeah, now. Yeah. Unions hated this. Right. Like people hate this. And yeah. then when he goes and runs against Trump, Trump, who's all like trying to do this, like economic. I mean, he might have totally abandoned that at, at that point. He seems to be leaning more on the xenophobia yeah. angle yeah, sure. these days um, and always. But he, Bernie can go in and when Trump says some stupid bullshit about how he's standing against, he's like, oh, America first, right. China second, predatory, bad deals, bad deals. Bernie can be like, yo, you made a thing right. that's basically NAFTA 2.0. Right, exactly, you can yeah. fuck off, bitch. O- also, yeah. I remember oh, Jamie. I remember <laughs> the point that I was going to make before. It's my good friend, if I can just say it's my good friend, Jamie Peck. <laughs> <laughs> the point I was going to make before is it's ironic because... Uh, in 1994, when uh, Clinton signs, he pushes for and then signs NAFTA. Political scientists look back, and it was the absolute fucking betrayal right. of the organized U.S. working class as represented by that relatively reactionary but okay organization known as the AFL-CIO. Yeah, yeah. It was union voters not coming out to vote in the midterm election in 1994 that handed Newt Gingrich the fucking uh, mm-hmm. the keys to the house at that point in time. Right. So really, Clintonism is like the are these concessions that you give, and then you know, of course, you lose part of your base from that, your progressive base, right. your working and class you base, and you point to that. Yes, exactly, and say that we your need by your, this. Yeah. yeah, and we need to start. Um, negotiating with the new Gingriches and the Paul Ryans exactly. of America in order to take away Social Security, yeah. you know, Medicare, whatever the case may and be. And it's also like kind of gaslighty and yeah. fucked up for the Democrats to abandon organized labor. Yeah. And then when organized labor does not show up for them in return to say like, oh, that's because they're a bunch of racist, sexist right. pieces right. of shit. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. The, and it is the vacuum again. But, you know, Thomas Frank says um, he... I can't remember who who has this theory, but he believes it, which is that thank God for Monica Lewinsky because he says that yes, right? I know so, this argument. Yeah. yeah, it's good. So they were going to pry like Newt Gingrich and and um, Bill Clinton were going to come together to privatize uh, bipartisanship, bipartisanship uh, Social Security, and because the Mon- because of the Monica thing, uh, he was too toxic for Newt Gingrich to be seen working with working together with. So they kind of scrapped that. But yeah, I don't put anything past them. And um, really quickly, that point you just brought up about people filling out, I I think this is one of the dumbest social science premises ever. And I know you're not pushing this forward, but you referenced like when when Hitler or whomever, whatever demagogue, they don't they don't run on saying you're poor and embarrassed and humiliated or you feel poor and embarrassed and humiliated. So I'm going to pretend it's the fault of the Jews. But really, I'm just doing that as a scapegoat, and you feel bad about yourselves because of economic stuff. But we're going to pretend it's the Jews and not the international world order. That's not how it works. The whole point is that you t- tap into people's unrest, unhappiness, and mm. you put a narrative out there that says it's the fault of the Jews, the blacks, the gays, the immigrants. The Muslims, yeah. yeah. And then so when you're, when, you're, when you're polled or you're asked these questions, you're not like, actually, it's structural adjustment. 
It's actually yeah. the WT. No, yeah, that of implies not. that people understand yeah. their own actions far too well. Yeah, right. or what's behind or the them, material or, conditions yeah, the material behind conditions. them. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. so absurd. The whole reason scapegoating works is because you're manipulating people, and they're not a you know. Yeah, I think it's a really yeah. weird. Yeah, there are a lot of like uh, overdetermining yeah. phenomena that it, are kind of hard to capture in a poll like that. We look back at the '90s again as people our age, as like this moment when we came up. You know, this moment when um, it was the end of history. Mm-hmm. It was a moment in time where the United States was a unipolar power. It yeah. was able to pull together a coalition to invade, say, Iraq in the Desert Storm. It was able to pull together NATO in order to intervene in Serbia. It was this moment in time where it seemed like, you know, for all intents and purposes, that with the end of the Cold War, that uh, history had ended. And, you know, like American prosperity and a lot of the kind of existential social and political and economic questions of the world, you know, with there being a quote unquote socialist, really existing socialism, were gone and over and done with. And it, it, it seemed plausible at the time, but obviously, you know, uh, we've seen that wasn't the case. Well, I think that it's like there's such a dangerous thing, which is that, you know, this is the new end of history. Like this is a new we need to go back to the normal. Right. Things were good then. And what's so important to remember is you were just referring to the Gulf War. Like there was a bad Iraq war. It was bad yeah. the first time. Oh, God. Like, yeah. Uh, my mom writes fiction and, and nonfiction. And she wrote actually fictionalized like historical fiction about Gulf War syndrome. And, like, we didn't lose as many Americans, but we certainly lost a lot. And we certainly killed, like, I don't know how many Iraqis. Oh, the, the road of death. The highway of death. The highway of death. While they were yeah. retreating, we just bombed yeah. the shit out of them. Timothy McVeigh was there, by the way. My yes. mom thinks he has PTSD right. from that. And that's yep. what happened. And he, um, but this idea that, like, I mean, we just saw, the thing about Trump is he's both an, Depart- he's both a departure, but if we don't see it, how much he's a continuation, mm. we're really screwed and we're really doomed. A hundred percent. And that's the scary thing, and we have to remember that. Um, yeah, people talk about the '90s like it was a period of relative peace and prosperity, um, but America was still doing all kinds of fucked up stuff yeah. around the world. It was just they were just really good at shielding yeah, us exactly. from either the knowledge or the backlash effects yeah, or the of fallout those. Of those things. And yeah, then, right, yeah. you know, if you want to talk about what happened in the aughts, in the late 90s even, we start seeing stuff like, you know, random acts of violence, yeah. school um, shootings, yeah. to um, something as intense as 9-11 is clearly connected, in my yeah. mind, to all of the fucked of course, up and yeah. violent shit that was happening before then. Well, so if we periodize this, uh, you know, if, if I was doing this with Matt Crispin about the 90s, we'd have like a strict periodization uh history as a weapon we would just go like just murder the shit out of like the the history of the 90s but we're not going to do that i'm sorry i'm not matt chrisman babe i try so hard uh, to be matt chrisman but i i can never really fulfill when when we snug when we snug in bed at night as we're going to sleep i do dream that it's matt chrisman you want me to wear the crocs to bed is that what you're saying i mean i'm glad that all the listeners can hear that but yes (laughs) we'll start tonight but no like uh, i don't want to fucking beat the shit to death on the history thing but um you know the 90s really i i I think is a periodization of it goes from 1991 right with the fall of the soviet union Union, yep till 2001 with 9-11 because you had this sort of interregnum 
period. Jamie and I were watching a little show called Seinfeld, which wow. I grew up on and uh, loved to death. And she, her mother, did not allow her to watch Seinfeld. Didn't let me watch I like it. Curb. I don't like the, I don't like Seinfeld. They talked. Well, my mom, uh, a she just didn't like it because the people on it were like really annoying yeah. and stressed her out. Yeah, they're assholes. They're that's assholes, the and that's funny. Yeah. But also because she thought it was too sexual. Interesting. And you yeah. know what? Watching it now, they do talk quite a bit about sex. Yeah, they yeah, do. But the but actually the, the watching the Seinfeld, her for the first time and me for the umpteenth time, um, kind of brought us to this uh, 90s episode because if you look at cultural aesthetic of the time, or that has to say the ideology that exists within Seinfeld, which is very representative of the 90s, there is that irony. Very much, it's an ironic decade, mm-hmm. culturally. The postmodern whatever shrug, as yes. my college professor, Ross Posnock, would say. Yes, yeah. as Ross Posnock would say, the postmodern whatever. I don't know who that is, but you also had a, uh, you know, you had this irony. You also had a degree of cynicism, right? Um, but you didn't have what we have today, even though we have both irony and cynicism in spades, like go right. online anywhere, talk to anybody in any situation. Everybody's very cynical and ironic unless they're a fucking Mormon. Mm-hmm. That kind of like cultural formation of like this sort of uh, devil may care cynicism has transferred itself 20 years later to the present. But what they did not have then, but what we have now is a nihilism. Mm-hmm. There was still this sense that we're ironic, we're cynical, we don't uh, yeah. believe in anything. However, we'll it's the end of decades. history. We have this, you know, we're going to move forward. There was this sense, like Martin Luther King said, that the arc of history is long, but it Good bends towards justice. justice. Yeah. You had. Uh, yeah, we just Ellen had to work De- out the details, you, you know? You had Ellen DeGeneres coming out of the closet. Oh, my God. You had In Living Color on TV. Right. You had Gangster Rap. You had. Um, what else? What's el- what else is representative culturally from the '90s? I don't know. You had fucking TLC singing about waterfalls. Music. Yeah, yeah Little Fair, Girl. Indigo, Indigo Girl. Girls. You had uh, Woodstock '99. Yeah. Sidebar: oh, yeah, When one. Ellen came out of the closet, my mom's lesbian friends had a party at That's their really house. Cool. And we went over to their house and we had a hot tub party and we watched Ellen come out of the closet and it was the cutest thing ever. I mean, that's cute. That's legitimately cute. So the reason why I think, and this is not particularly deep, but I think sociologically it works, is that in the 1990s, this fundamental optimism existed because the existential threat of the Cold War had been finished. It was this uh, decade, it was this moment between 91 and 2001 where things seemed sort of inchoate, right? Where it seemed like there were um, progressive values, let's say, that were able to be realized uh, in the culture and in real life. And an important part of it, too, is that we had the dot-com bubble and we also had a growing economy under Bill Clinton. So ultimately... When yeah, look, the, the neoliberal fixes worked for a little while. Yeah, they worked for about eight years. And we survived years. the Cold War. It's and like we survived thing. the Cold War. Like that was a, very important. If you're too, having but... like a, a, a crash of some sort and you just decide to eat a bunch of sugar yeah. and you feel power, better for a little through. while. Yeah, and right. let's be clear from the economic indicators. And again, I'm not going to get political economic on this shit, but that was the last time, the last period in the United States that we saw actual growth and we actually saw wages aligning somewhat with productivity at that moment in time for a whole bunch of convoluted technical reasons mostly computerization and automization which was making the average american worker even more productive and more exploitable you know with every given hour that they work right but 
the 90s again until 2001 was this interregnum because we had finished with that Cold War shit where I still remember as a kid, you know, being afraid of the nuclear bombs yeah. falling. And, you know, I didn't quite duck and cover, but Reagan certainly ratcheted that shit up in the 80s. Uh, and then 9-11. But in between that, it did seem like we had reached this sort of like um, end point of history, yeah. this stasis Homo moving stasis forward, or, which yeah. was political yeah. with Clinton, this third way where, you know, there was this sense that like we could get past left and right and have a third way to move our consensus, way forward, a yeah. consensus politics, and also economically with that boom. And then culturally with the sense that like LGBT folks, uh, black people, Latinos, they could all express themselves and represent themselves mm -hmm. in the media, blah, blah, blah. Representation was big. But yeah. the... Benetton, United Colors. Yes, you, yeah, thank you. That's some 1990 shit. And yet, at the same time, if we look back on it, you look at the race aspect, right, for black Americans... What is also happening in the 90s? Mass incarceration. Mass incarceration. Thanks, Rodney Bill Clinton. King, yeah. Thanks. And Rodney King yeah. and, the, and the insurrection. I won't call it a riot. I will call it oh, an yeah, insurrection that happens after that moment in time. So for everything, every kind of self-imagination um, self of people in the 90s and self-aggrandizement uh, about how progressive we were, there's a dark side to that in the entire time. So if you look at, um, you know, In Living Color being on TV and finally, like, you know, black voices being heard in comedy and on television, you also had Rodney King. And for <clears throat> everything about there being a uh, neoliberal consensus moving forward where we would have like, you know, somewhat progressive social policies, but somewhat regressive, you know, trade policies or whatever. You also had fucking who is that guy you named Timothy McVeigh, yeah. you know, blowing yeah. shit up. Not to mention like the standard of living that American workers enjoyed was completely built on exploitation yeah. of other workers around the world. The rise of China, because, yeah. you know, in, in China, we, we gave them the uh, what's it called? The, uh, the the trade status of like the most friend. What was it? Most friendly yeah. trade partner. Well, let's call it that, <laughs> even though that's not what yeah. it is. Yeah. Friendly trade boys. Friendly yeah. trade Fuck boys. Boy. Yeah. So we were able to bring uh, China and their cheap labor into the uh, into the orbit, and also, of course, NAFTA as well in right. Mexico. So that prosperity, of course, is built on the exploitation of people in the global south at the same time. So I feel like um, experientially for the three of us in this room and probably a lot of the listeners at home, it seemed like a very hopeful decade. But there, looking back on it, there was a dark underbelly. Yeah. And a lot of the terrorism that we see today, domestic terrorism, arrives with Ruby Ridge, with Waco, yeah. with the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, God, you know, and fucking Columbine yeah. at the same time with these school shootings that arises in the 90s. Uh, and also, too, like the inherent contradictions within neoliberal capitalism really reached their peak in the dot-com bust in, yeah. in, in 2000. Not to mention, like, the kind of sort of ironic cynicism that arose in the 90s was, you know, at the time it was, like, cute and funny or whatever, like, Oh, we have like material comforts, but we're still like fairly alienated and fucked up and like aimless and like angsty for no reason. Right. Like that has curdled into some much darker shit in the current day as the social bonds dissolve further and further and we progress further into the neoliberal period. Yeah. Uh, people are like fucked up and crazy and yeah. they don't trust their neighbors. They don't trust the other and like a lot of this um, white supremacist violence that we've been seeing is essentially nihilistic 
And when I say that 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 has a material basis, I am not saying that people necessarily act out as a result of being economically deprived. Right. Right. Just because as there is not a one to one correlation between economic deprivation and voting for Trump. I'm saying that when you have such an advanced and fucked up society where everything, every human relationship has been completely subsumed under the auspices of the market, yeah. um, people are going to act out. It's very antisocial ways. Yeah, and it's very silly to say, oh, but look at this person. They experienced this. That's not what you're saying. You're not saying it's a direct required result. But, you know, it's funny because um, I wrote down these notes, but there's the Rodney King thing. And the, for some reason, I really remember, I was in third grade, I guess, when the Rodney King thing happened. I remember doing a report on it at school. And I kept saying, as if I were an adult, I was like, it's not an isolated incident. It's not an isolated incident. I remember being like really impressed with that expression when I was in third grade. But what's so you have Rodney King and then you have um, Sister Soldier. Yeah. Right? So you have the, yeah. what did you call it? The uh, uh, insurrection? What did you call the? the no, yeah? I called the LA riots yeah. as I called them an insurrection. Insurrection, yeah. yeah. So you have that and then Sister Soldier says something about white people and, the vi- you know, violence against white people. And then Bill Clinton totally like. Um, has, it's it's turned into like a sister yeah. soldier, a dog whistles, yes. Jesse Jackson. Yeah. And the other thing is Clarence Thomas. So the things that I, for some reason, I don't remember Columbine that much, but I really remember watching the Clarence Thomas hearings because I remember, just like I remember the term um, isolated incident, the phrase, I remember him saying, I do not recollect. I do mm. not recollect. And I was like, what? this guy's so lying. I was like, this. once mm-hmm. I asked my parents what that word meant, I was like, this guy's lying. And I was like, I believe in Nita Hill. And I was like, but you know what? Something that happened that like, didn't mean anything for me then obviously but i don't think meant as much for adults then either which is remember clarence thomas said that this is a high-tech lynching yes and that was like the beginning of the betray not i'm not saying of identity politics because there's nothing bad about identity politics it's the betrayal and hijacking of them which is using them to achieve the opposite ends and that's what he did Mm -hmm. he's a racist uh, uh judge he got rid you know he did everything he could to make it's so that the powerful were more powerful and and, and all, his voting record is extremely racist and homophobic and sexist and classist and all that stuff and and just like draconian and punitive and this is just so f- interesting that 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 this is a guy who like hates identity politics and he used it at that moment and it's, that to me is also like a scary foreshadow it's so gross yeah it's so he was gross. a yeah. black power guy bla- in college oh really yeah damn i didn't know that well yeah. if you want to talk about um other parallels that carry forward i mean in recent years we had the insurrection in ferguson right. and yeah. other parts of the country and once again those 90s third way liberals cast cast black activists aside mm-hmm. like yeah. the way that uh, the Clintons treated Black Lives Matter activists on the campaign trail was fucking despicable. And then you have people trying to do respectability politics and keep them at arm's length. And I think it really speaks to some of the ways that activists now are much more concerned with like an intersectional analysis that includes race and class. And, you know, maybe some politicians from the old guard are more concerned with representation and respectability. Right. Also, um, very quickly, um, Jenny Thomas drunk dialed Anita Hill. (laughs) Who's that? What's the story? Clarence Thomas's wife called Anita Hill. 
What'd she say? What'd she she say? thinks she drunk dialed her and asked her to apologize or something. Uh, look it up. Listeners. Oh, geez. Listeners, look it up. Clarence Thomas. Uh, one of the more reactionary uh, justices we have on the, on the Supreme Court. Uh, of course, Thurgood Marshall, the uh, the first black um, Supreme Court justice, right? Yeah. Was very extremely progressive yeah. on that court. And Clarence Thomas was kind of a sop to this um, conception right. of uh, representation on the Supreme Court, even though he had a very He's like extreme... He's black, black people. Yeah, like yeah. Candace Owens. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's great. I'm one it's of the awesome. good ones. He's yeah. one of the good ones, the ones that, uh, you know, hate. And not just good, like often that's about respectability but you know it's like what biden said about obama which we didn't even get into clean and articulate articulate. but that was that was not this was just like awful and reactionary and racist and black right it wasn't just like the the acceptable yeah yeah. but but let's talk about what's good about the 90s what do you guys think about uh grunge music it's the 25th Uh, anniversary of uh kurt cobain uh popping himself that, that i was on the bus we were on a school trip to washington dc and I guess a girl on the in our grade had a radio because I don't know how she heard about it, but she was a big fan of his, and uh, she told us all that he died. I was at a friend's house, my friend Ben, and uh, we were playing outside, and we came in, and the TV was still on, and uh, a guy by the name of Kurt Loder was on MTV. Oh, yeah. They'd have been on, and he announced it, and uh, yeah, it was really real. It really happened. Um, I am too young to remember. In any kind of real way, I was not allowed to watch MTV as a child uh, until so I was. Were you relig- like, was your mom religious? No, just-, just protective. Okay. She's gonna get so mad if she hears me say that, but it's true. Cautious. I wasn't allowed to watch MTV until I was in the fifth grade, I believe. Okay. At which point, it was a little past its prime. Yeah. But uh, so I don't really remember that. I mean, I love Kurt Cobain. He was one of the good ones. He was a good, he's a good male feminist ally. He also had a critique of capitalism and consumer culture. Right. That was like a very 90s thing. Yeah, right? it was. To yeah. be like it's all about authenticity. Yeah. about yeah. that shit. But oh, like yeah, he was, he was right. Yes like we like to make fun of it, but they weren't wrong. Yeah, like, no. That kind of consumer culture is very hollow and leads to like horrible antisocial shit like we were just talking about. Um, it's all the people that came after Kurt Cobain and kind of tried to copy him that I was like, no, like bad style, bad music, bad way to sing. Uh, you talking Silverchair? Yeah. Even like Eddie Vedder. <laughs> I like Eddie Like, I guess he invented no. kind of a cool way to sing, but like maybe not worth it for all the dudes who came after him. No, actually, I, I would argue that um, here's my hot take on uh grunge music as it was called because uh i remember the day that my uncle uh gave me the uh pearl jam 10 record it was a f- it was a 92 93 it was very formative it has like a lamb moment. on it a sheep on it yeah yeah. yeah yeah very formative moment in my life and uh i think the the tragedy of kirk cobain r.i.p um even though i don't really care at this point in time is that he had this critique of consumerism and of the music industry, but at the same time, he also wanted fame, and uh, he also like kind of internally wanted to live up to this. Uh, who's a famous pop like Beatles or uh, Roy Elvis. Orbison, Elvis sort of like conception? And it was that contradiction between you know him rejecting it, but him also 
compulsively wanting that thing that I think ultimately yeah, I, led I to his probably, psychological yeah. issues. Well, yeah, which then, is like what irony is often, right? You're distancing yourself and making yes. fun of it, but you actually are affected by it. Yes. Like, huh, that's so stupid, I know but his, I want it. His heroin use was a reflection of that, and I think his suicide was a reflection well, of that, Well, I mean, I think his issues started before he became famous. Oh, babe, remember when you and me went to the town that he grew up in in uh, oh, Washington yeah. State? That we was so depressing. the house he grew up in. Oh, my God. There's like, it's not marked or anything. You can, you can just look Look, you what look about, up where it is. Okay, yeah. I, what about Chris Cornell? I I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I for R.I.P. whatever reason I came across him, and um, he's an angel now. I know. Well, so is Kirk Cobain. Singing right? with but the angels. He's a devil. He was very had a really good voice. I think. Yeah, I was never that into him. Me but, neither. But I just came across a I video, mean, and sad. I was struck by how much his daughter. Honestly, his daughter has an amazing voice. And looks a lot like him. And I just found, I was like very viscerally moved by it. And then I started looking into, you know, it's very sad. It's story. sad how he died. What's yeah. inter- I think this happens always, whether it's the 50s, the 60s, or the 70s, or the 80s for that matter. Uh, I feel like there's a way in which the uh, spectacle of that era, like the cultural expression of that era, is separated from the actual conditions that it, it arose in and is turned into this sort of... Um, I don't know, this this cultural product. So I, I feel like today, maybe more so a few years ago, but I feel like the 90s is held up as this moment of like the last good decade where like you people were creating good art. Kurt Cobain was creating good art. Chris Cornell was creating good art. You had Dinosaur Jr. You had, you know. You had Dinosaurs, the TV show. Yeah, you, you oh, had yeah. all, all these the things. Knock the mama, knock the mama. Now may Remember? I give you a, 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 oh, yes. a thesis on this? Yeah. All right. Go for it. You ready for my thesis? Is it bong rip time? Uh, it's like vaguely uh, bong rip time. So 90s nostalgia. This is good. This goes out to all the Gen Z listeners of ours out there and the Gen Z listeners of the Katie Halper show. We know you're out there. We affirm your existence yes. and we do not. We see you. We see you. You're we not see erased. You. We respect you. Please don't kill us and eat us. Exactly. We're a little scared of you, but you're our comrades. So. Understand, right, that this 90s nostalgia that exists at this moment in time, um, we can attribute it to the cohort that grew up in that decade now being fully subsumed into the culture industry, right? So if you're like us, you were born between, say, 1978 and 1985, 86 or whatever, right? You you came up in that time. That was your moment. That was when you became like a human being with all of the cultural signifiers that represented that. You knew when Kurt Cobain died, or at least you knew when Nine Inch Nails put out the incredible Downward Spiral record. You know, you knew these things. I didn't know that. It was part of you. But like this 90s nostalgia, this cohort that grew up uh, is subsumed right now as we speak into the culture industry and into advertising. Oh, yeah. So if you were born in that era, right? If yeah, you're, you're like probably us, someone's boss at Viacom now. Yes. You, you, if you're lucky. If you manage to hustle a job in an increasingly precarious creative class, you're now old enough to have you know editorial control over content but yet still young enough to be quote in touch with the kids kind As, of kind the of the kids right? think we're really lame by the way but listen it's it's different like if you compare it to the boomers right so as the boomers fade off into their senescence and they sure are <laughs> they're like <laughs> alternating between penning tortured 
Facebook posts about how mad they are at uh, AOC and, uh, and QAnon, but how mad they are at AOC and also masturbating to AOC pictures online, oh, that's, right? That's, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. As, the, as the boomers fade away, the Gen Xers who really created most of the culture of the 90s, if you look at all those bands we talked yeah. about, you look at the movie Singles, you look oh, at yeah. this, that, and the other yeah, thing, right? Butte. Yeah. Like, yeah, Gen Xers are the fallen America of generations, by which I mean their their economic power has somewhat faded. They're no longer an imperial power, but they still have cultural hegemony. Yes. And what I would argue it, and this is completely like it's a combination of cultural and political economy. Right. But the Gen Xers who created that culture of the 90s, they are now the middle managers. They are managing Right. The uh, the fucking millennials, they're the middle managers and they are very, very happy to trade on the cultural effemina that they created. That was really the only halfway decent thing that Gen X has ever, ever done in its sad, shitty little lives. Right. This explains, I think, 90s nostalgia is that Gen X sucks mm. And they want us, they want to pull us into the only moment in time, that 10 year period, when they actually had any purchase on anything. Now they can just go off and then go fuck themselves. That's, that's funny that you should say that because as a gothic American, <laughs> I much prefer the culture of both the 80s and the early 2000s to the culture of the 90s. Well, the 90s were not a good time for goths. What uh, about that movie? Um, Charmed? No, like that. The craft. The craft. The craft. Yeah, I mean, we have some things. Yeah, it's a moment. But, like, if I had to pick but my Heather's favorite decade. Good. Oh, yes. Heather's oh, yes. And, and craft is If craft, I had to yeah. pick my. I mean, I if I'm nostalgic for any time, it's for the early 2000s when I was young and cool and living in New York for the first time and just starting to, like, feel myself a little. I was an adult. I could stay up as late as I wanted to. And a lot of the bands from then were like, you know, mostly rehashing shit from an earlier time. Like it was, it was uh, postmodern. It was, we had officially entered the postmodern yeah. era, but it was pretty fucking amazing. Like the yeah, yeah, yes, the strokes. No, I, I think the, the difference in the 90s, too. And you guys tell me if I'm wrong here is that. Maybe it was the last decade when there was uh, a sort of unified mass culture. You know, the Internet had not produced streaming. Right. The Internet, Napster only came out in 1999. You still had to buy CDs. If you were into some sort of subcultural shit, you had to actually go to like punk shows and pick up the fleas and lice right. uh, newsletter, buy a zine. Right. Yeah, they were not just virtual. You had cable TV and, you know, the box, the box, VH1 and uh, and uh, MTV. But yeah, the box. Do you guys did you have the box? That's, was it just in New York? You would call up to the station and request a song. It was like a jukebox. Oh, I remember but that. But TV. Yeah. And you yeah, would call yeah, yeah. and you'd put in a code for a song. And I remember really liking the song, Do You Want a Piece of My Goody, 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 Goody Loving? <laughs> Classic. Um, but, you know, when you mentioned... Are you, am I interrupting? Yeah, no, go ahead. I'm when, done. When you mentioned the albums thing, something that I remember that I don't know if everyone does is that, like, when I was growing up, when we were growing up, we would listen to albums. Like, you would listen from the from start to finish of an album. Oh, yeah. And sometimes I would tape them for my yeah, friends. Yeah, mixtapes were a thing, too. But what never happens anymore is that when I listen to some songs that I used to listen to, 
after the ending of a song, I start to hear the next song in the album, like mm-hmm. automatically yeah. in my head that comes on. And that doesn't happen anymore because yeah. we don't listen to songs. Most of us. I mean, some music aficionados, I guess. I mean, do. I listen to albums. But I, okay, I don't because I'm like I a don't. Philistine. I don't either, yeah. And really? No. I definitely like I I'll hear a certain song from that I used to listen to and it's like part of an album and I don't experience that anymore at hmm. all with, with songs. Most I people to. don't. If you don't remember uh, waiting and listening to Z100 at night Z100. to have that that one song come on, so you put it on your um, put the cassette tape in the deck and record Press it record. at that moment, so you had that. Then uh, I didn't actually. You do never that, lived but the nineties. I, I mean, yeah. most people probably don't remember listening to Z100 because that's an extremely regional reference. Oh, New York. Right? Well, but I we mean, any pop world, station. Though. Yeah, we yeah. do though. We do. We do it's be good. like that. Yeah. We do run well, the world. I mean, mass culture has its uh, strengths and weaknesses, right? It's I, funny because you think of the nineties as being so much more individualistic. And now uh, millennials are like a bunch of fucking sheep or whatever who just want to fit in. But uh, culture has become much more fragmented. So the other thing, too, that that was big in the 90s that people don't talk about, I think, enough, is that uh, you had the the end of the fairness doctrine by the FEC and the rise of Rush Limbaugh and uh, AM radio as this sort of underground, not quite so underground, but, uh, you know, the, the, this subterranean kind of right-wing move in the United States, which I think was really the beginning of, it might be on a different medium, but the beginning of, like, Stephen Molyneux and Paul Joseph Watson and Alex Jones, you know, these people who are speaking directly to you and yeah, the, uh, truth the truth tellers out there. So that was a big thing in the 90s. and It was part of this kind of prairie rebellion that you saw back then. Yeah, and, like, something totally fucking corporate and shitty presenting itself as, like, an edgy truth teller and the only one who's going to tell you the truth. Uh, Conservatism uh, became something that was, like, underground because the neoliberal consensus was so strong that people really believed when they listened to Rush Limbaugh that they were hearing some sort of, like, hidden truth, some hidden knowledge out there, somebody who was willing to talk to them for five hours on the radio Mm. about, like, what the libs don't want you but to like know. the mainstream republican party was neoliberal like they we just said they point, all yeah. voted for nafta right uh not all of them but many of them did yeah so were these people outside of the mainstream of the republican party oh yeah rush limbaugh was still in a, a way that maybe prefigured like trump tea, taking it yes, over party. exactly the tea party the tea, yeah. party. Mm. the tea party is the real expression of yeah. like what R- rush limbaugh represents yeah. in the 1990s so it takes you know 10 15 years for that to actually become a political movement. But what is seeded in the 1990s in AM radio, I think really does become the sort of like uh, insurgent wing of the Republican mm. Party, let's say. And then most importantly for us out there on the uh, the activist left, the socialist left, the, uh, I don't know, anti-globalization left. Remember that term, anti-globe? Yeah. What about No mm-hmm. Logo? From no Neo, Logo, Neo yes. Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. Back to that ad buster shit. Yeah. Is and I think this is the most regrettable thing. Not the most regrettable thing about nine eleven. I would never say that. It was the thousands of people that died at nine eleven. But one thing that happens, and the that, uh, you know, yeah, the million, the million or yeah. so people that died after that. But uh, in nineteen ninety nine, uh, people might remember the Battle of Seattle, and that was a huge moment when environmental activists, local anarchists, and socialists. And communists in the uh, Pacific Northwest, along with unionists, uh, basically came together when there was a World Trade Organization meeting in Seattle to raise holy fucking hell. 
And that had, I remember distinctly to this day because I followed all those forums and the early internet. I read this online. I knew shit was going to pop off in Seattle because I saw the organizing happening. It was so far away from me. It was on the other side of the country. Yeah, this is before knew... the cops discovered the internet. Yes, it was. Yeah. And you could see everybody organizing it. And then the shit popped off. And it was like a complete ratchet effect like the entire media freaked the fuck out because how can you try to stop the juggernaut of the globalization neoliberal consensus and in 1999 those activists and those trade unionists they really fucking had something going and it was part of the popular culture and it was only in 2001 because this kind of summit hopping activism became a thing it was only with 9-11 that that wto battle of seattle anti-globe thing uh what was it the um genoa yeah genoa when the guy got killed and then but but like yeah porto alegre thank you so in porto alegre like it was becoming a global sort of movement against the hegemony of this neoliberal thing and it was only with 9-11 that that momentum that the left had at that point in time was stopped and then we enter into the aughts which was again a reason why the 90s is a nostalgic period the aughts was the ashes we were Mm -hmm. in the wake of 9-11 we were on the ground if we had any fun it was dancing in the fucking ashes yeah yeah sometimes i wonder what uh sean would have been like if i met him earlier but uh the answer is he was a real scumbag i was a dirtbag you wouldn't have wanted to know not like now when um where were you when 9-11 happened oh I was in a meeting of the recycling club at my high school and remind me what city this is in uh, West Hartford, Connecticut. Right, right. And they right. brought us all into the cafeteria and we watched it on TV. We watched it unfold. I think I was there when the plane hit the second tower. And I remember at the time being just like obviously shocked about the event and the violence of it, but also so fucking scared about what our country was going to do as a result in the world. So you're already political by them. Oh yeah, I was big lib. Yeah, I uh, I was at Wesleyan. I was in college, and I remember like not getting it at all at first, being like, "Wait, but didn't the World Trade Center already get in '93?" Yeah, right? and I yeah. don't. I wasn't even being glib. I just I remember waking up to the my alarm went off and there was a radio, and I heard something about it, and I was like, "Oh, we'll just walk." But I have to say, like, my family was in, my mom was in New York, my cousin was in New York, like, my dad was in Oregon for whatever reason. I feel like it didn't, and I was just, I was in Connecticut, in Middletown, but I really don't feel like, like, I, I, I feel like we were all affected by the politics afterward in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we had friends who actually, they lost their kid in one of them, and they immediately went to action as, like, not in our name, telling mm-hmm. Bush not to go into mm-hmm. Afghanistan, but... I don't feel like it happened to me in a way that a lot of people, I think, felt like it happened to them in this in New York or even in the tri-state area. I don't know. Yeah. Well, if you talk to certain uh, American flag draped small business owners in the middle of the country, it happened to them the most. Yeah, And they're like literal in their backyard. And they're Uh, never going to forget. I mean, I was I was out of the city, but I called my brother and uh, my friends and my ex-girlfriends and made sure everybody was okay. And everybody was all right, but um, it definitely feel it felt like the end of the world. Yeah. It felt like the end of an era, really, because um, you know we can say a lot of things about nine eleven, but it, it was the war being brought home. Yeah, in a sense, yeah, chickens coming home to roost. Yes, exactly. You said it, so I didn't have to. That moment uh, was a decisive break because even George W. Bush was on board with these kind of Clintonian 
uh, politics, this compassionate conservatism. And it was only with 9-11 happening that I think the 90s truly ended because mm. this idea of optimism and hope and change, <laughs> as a man said some years right. after that, uh, finally died. And people realized that history wasn't over, uh, that uh, even though the uh, United States was the imperial hegemon uh, politically, economically and culturally, that, uh, yeah, uh, atrocities would still happen and that... Uh, we should put trillions of dollars into wars uh, abroad that lead to the deaths of millions of people. And uh, maybe that's part of why folks see the 90s as a, as a yeah. uh, nostalgic well, period. Culture, it's pre that, you know? Culture went backwards for a while after that. Politics went backwards. Politics went backwards. Culture went backwards. Like, I, I even felt weird being like a left liberal who was against the war because my prep school was lousy with Republicans. Like I wonder what I wonder what that school is like now mm. because I feel like Hopefully these people yeah right I feel like these people now like Trump is still not mentioned in polite company it was very different back then like my school was definitely divided between like Democrats and Republicans well I I remember again going back in time to uh, the first the to Desert Storm and I remember the uh, jingoism and. Um, the xenophobia at that moment in time and all of my classmates wearing the um, the shirts with the yellow ribbons on them. We oh, support yeah. our troops, right? Yeah. You remember that shit? And, nine, and uh, September 11th, for the tragedy that it was, was really the return, the apotheosis of uh, that moment that I had experienced. And at that time, I just dropped out, man. Like any conception yeah. that, you know, anything was going to be good, that there was progress, that the moral arc bent towards justice was yeah, thrown no. out the window for many many years no, we've talked about this before like we saw millions of people protesting the iraq yeah. war i was there and it didn't do yeah, I know. shit i know it didn't do shit and most people didn't give a shit yep. so like why would you not give up and do drugs for eight years after that you know well yeah i didn't i i, I did the drugs and Honestly, like that, that, Same. yeah, that maybe is, um, you know, for the, for the younger listeners out there, that's maybe a point of reference now, as we talk about the bankruptcy of nineties nostalgia, and we understand maybe why people were nostalgic about the nineties is it's only now as we see, you know, within the democratic party, a real rupture between this neoliberal yeah. consensus that arose in the 1990s mm -hmm. and something that approximates like the new deal consensus that existed before mm -hmm. that. It's only within that, that like we're finally after fucking 30 years or so, like getting back to even the, even touching on what actual economic yeah, we've, justice we've means. We've clawed what... our way back to dealing with the same problems that exactly. we were just starting to deal with. I mean, exactly. I think that never the... vote for the war credits, people, I... by the way. Yeah. That's, that's... that's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane. Listen to yourself. Turn world to its own needs. Dummy serve your own needs. Oh, oh, overflow, population, common food, but it'll do. Save yourself, serve yourself, world, serve yourself.
Bye. 